I um, heard someone say yesterday that the early church construction method is not the early church biblical, but like as in early traditional church construction plans made it so that you would have to go through a near maze to get into the sanctuary part of the church um, as a deliberate effort to get people to slow down by the time they reached the place where they would come together as the church. I think it's probably more true of us now that we need that to actually make space. Um, yeah, so I spent some time yesterday at a, um, at a conference uh, called Surrender Conference, which is largely uh, led by uh, Indigenous leaders. Um, yeah, so we spent some time um, and uh, sitting both inside, we had um, you know, a time of songs and I'm always struck whenever I'm uh, with uh, anything um, that's led by uh, the, you know, a church that has Aboriginal leaders or when, it, uh, you know, when the uh, music musicians or um, our Aboriginal people you find that there's so much space and quiet in um, in the services, and it, it's quite like for the first time. I think I went to a prayer vigil a couple of years back, and for me, coming from my um, you know kind of big church background, and and even when we do small church, we try to do it like big church, and and so it was almost jarring to me to sit in silence. Um, and I'm very also aware of the irony of having music playing in the background while I'm saying this, um, <laughs> but it's great. But uh, yeah, it's, it's something that I really um, have learnt to find the space to appreciate. Um, you know, you go a few times and uh, when you don't have a lot of time and space in life, um, Thank you. Yeah, I will. <laughs> I have been officially told. Um, yeah, something that uh, I think when the question is raised, what does church have to offer, you know, when you can download sermons online, can read, uh, read the Bible and study the Bible even for ourselves outside of... Yeah, um, we can even gather and have community and, you know, all of those sort of things. What, is, what does this space have to offer? Uh, and I think something that we need to revisit is making space in our services um, and learning to appreciate and sit in that space, even in the busyness, especially in the busyness of life. So that's something that we will do intentionally. Thanks, guys. We also appreciate your uh, time and space that you help um, help to make room for us to. <laughs> so, 
in this uh, in this gathering, we spent a bit of time um, inside, but we also spent a lot of time outside. Um, you know, down by the lake, out on the um, lawn and in the garden um, area that they have at the church there, and. Um, And you're able to appreciate that even our, sometimes our best efforts of recreating, you know, a nice environment, God has kind of gone, well, you know, one step better. But, you know, it's like whatever we can do, it, it's only, um, it's only a, a portion or a shadow or, you know, it's a representation of, of what God has already done for us um, and when you sit out in spaces under a tree and with light filtering and reflections from water and there's something that, you know, the the big buildings with all of their impressive, you know, structures and, and the stained glass windows and all of that does its best to capture that grandeur but still it's not like we can't find those things elsewhere. Um, and make space for those things in our life uh, outside of this space. But there's something about the discipline of coming in on a weekly basis, whether you feel like it or you're not feeling like it, um, especially when you're not feeling like it. If we you know, make a habit of going and sitting in one of those spaces that we find you know, refreshing and enjoyable where we can connect with God, We'll usually do those things, you know, um, when we feel like it or when we feel like we need it. Um, but there's something about the practice of doing that weekly at a time that means when God decides you need it, you're there. Like, it's like when, when you've decided you don't need to, you're still there. So... I would encourage anyone, if you, um, if you have the opportunity to sit and learn from people uh, who are different to you, um, who've had a different experience of life, um, and I think particularly First Nations Australians, we should take those opportunities to learn. Um, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't even be able to sum up some of the things, um, yeah, that were... Uh, the things I heard that were profound, um, just in conversation. Um, I'm going to get straight into the word this morning. If you've been following with us, we are up to Matthew and chapter 6. We'll be starting uh, from verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what, will, what you will wear. It is, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap uh, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of your life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. Uh, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. 
But God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, um, uh, and tomorrow is thrown into the, in the oven. Will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. I'm going to come back to that, by the way. There, do not worry, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive after these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for it brings worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. Lord, I ask that you would give us clarity this morning. As we hear your word, Lord, I ask that you would give me uh, the ability to speak uh, with clarity, uh, that I would communicate your word and not mine. You know, I've probably never preached from this verse. Maybe not for a really long time anyway. And I'd probably put that down to working with young people, uh, working um, for a long time in places where uh, I have enough conversations with people to know that this text at face value um, is kind of like telling a teenager that's freaking out to calm down. It's like... Well, now I'm worried about worrying. Thanks. And I think it was probably because I've only ever heard it taught at face value out of the whole story as we've been going from verse to verse. And so when you read it and when you open the verse with therefore... You kind of just, it's just an introductory word, unless you know what it's referring to, unless you know that it's actually speaking about all of the things that have been taught up to that point, all of the things that have been taught about the kingdom, what it looks like, who God is, unless you read it from the assumption that this is Jesus speaking, who reveals the fullness of who God is. Who says, therefore, because he's given the story up to this point. And where he's at, he's not explaining a way to get to where he wants people to go. He's actually talking here about what it should look like if we realise that what he's teaching is true. So it's not a condemnation of anyone who is worried about having enough to eat. I think that's what troubled me the most about this verse. Until you realise that he's speaking to people who need to hear that God doesn't want people to have to worry about having enough to eat. 
that he is the God. He is saying, this is who I am. I am the God who desires that you be like the lilies in the field, clothed in their that you be like the birds of the air who have enough because it is their God, their creator, who sustains them and he's the God who wants us to be able to realise or recognise or receive that same provision, that same awareness of who God is, that same experience of having enough. So do not worry. I was interested to have a look at some of the words that are used here because sometimes I think the way we read is through the the kind of lens of what these words mean to us now or... Or maybe it's because of the way that these verses have been shared with us before. And so they carry all of these things with it when we read it. I had a look um, at a couple of phrases in here. You see, what is God's heart behind sharing this? What is Jesus teaching us? Um, What are we to receive from this about who God is and what this kingdom we're supposed to seek is supposed to look like. Um, And it all hangs, as so often, on the concluding verses. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. What do we know about the kingdom of God? What do we know about the kingdom that we're to strive, uh, to seek? We know that as a kingdom, and we could start right back at the start, where the reality is blessed are the poor. So if we to strive first for that kind of a kingdom then you will be taken care of also. You ever notice one of the most common arguments you get, or I hear, and maybe it's just me, but, um, you know, when I uh, have spoken publicly about our government's policy towards people seeking asylum, uh, when I've spoken about, um, you know, funding to community services or uh, the rate of um, welfare and support in our nation at the moment. Often what I get asked is, you know, but what about if that affects our safety? What about the people, you know, here who don't have enough and what they're really saying is how is that How's that going to affect me and mine? Yeah, but that has consequences, you know. What about the things that are... Am I supposed to just give all I have 
and be poor myself? Paul answers the question as if people were asking it then, so I assume it's been the question since Jesus started teaching these things. And the answer is given here. Strive first for the kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. I shared a workshop yesterday, uh, moving from charity to justice. And in that workshop, I explained the difference between charity and justice and from the understanding or from what the words uh, mean originally, not how we understand them now, because both have kind of warped connotations, which is why we use a term like social justice to describe what is actually just justice and why we imagine justice to be something quite punitive and why we imagine charity to be either something that is, you know, like philanthropy and and maybe a somewhat positive thing or why we imagine charity to be something shameful and carrying some kind of, um, you know... Uh, negative association with receiving charity. Um, But when you look at the biblical definitions of these words, when you look at the Hebrew words that are used that are translated charity and generosity, when you look at uh, the Hebrew and the Greek words that are translated justice and righteousness as um, this one, seek first God and his righteousness, they have very different meanings to some of the things that have come to define them now. Um, we started with charity and I explained how charity comes from... Uh, the, our English word charity comes from a Latin word, caristas, which is the same word, if you're familiar with medical terms, that um, the, uh, a lot of the medical... Um, terms for heart. Cart is the, you know, it's the same root word. And that Latin translation, like the, um, the Hebrew word that is translated charity, means not something that you give out of a feeling, because the heart wasn't necessarily just that. The heart was actually representative of everything, your mind, will and emotion, actually is kind of understood to be what the brain we now know uh, is more likely (laughs) everything is tied up in. And so to give or an act of charity was something that came out of a place of great value or at great cost to someone. And so it's necessary to note that if you, like I would imagine, um, yeah, I guess if I was to describe a lot of the stuff that I would do, like that is technically giving to charity, you know, if you, well, if you were to tick the form, you know, do you give any funds to charity? Is this a charitable organisation? Or you know, those sort of things. Um, it comes from a place of, a relative privilege, relative wealth, you know, um, we give of what we can give. We give 
um, generally of what we're able. I mean, sometimes there's that line of sacrificial giving and all of that sort of thing, but generally we give out of what we have and that's not actually charity, especially when it comes from a place of abundance. If we give out of having more than enough, that's not charity, that's justice. Because the proverb that says, the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. But what that actually, the word for is like to when you address um, a letter to or a parcel to something because it's theirs now. You've sent it to them. It's, they, they own it. Um, once they receive it, it's um, what that verse is saying is the wealth of the wicked is stored up, but it belongs to the righteous. So whenever we have more than we, what we need and we give some of it away, yes, it's a good thing. It's God's work in our hearts that does that, but it's not charity. It's justice. What I saw yesterday was a woman who was in her 60s who literally fought tooth and nail to stop her own children being removed from her care for no other reason than they were Aboriginal. Who had fought for her community and watched the community up the road have children removed who were playing on the beach while their parents were going about what they usually do in the day. Watched her stand and invite and call her own people into a place of forgiveness for those that had hurt them. And I can't even fathom how. But that is actually what charity looks like. That is what grace looks like. That is offering something that comes at great cost to oneself to strive first for the kingdom and his righteousness. This word righteousness, like, uh, or is more often translated justice. There's some important things uh, when you look at the word and the way that it's developed and why we translate it. Uh, why it comes out as righteousness in most of our Bibles is because of the Latin which translated, uh, it's, I, I hate trying to pronounce it, but the, it, it's uh, justice basically, but I-U-J-U-S in the Latin um, from the I-U-S, which means a right. Kind of like how you understand human rights or how you understand, you know, rights and responsibilities or we have a right to, that's, so it's, um, that concept that everyone has an inherent worth, an inherent, um, you know, they should have a right to have enough. Have you know? Though that's what that root word means, uh, both in the Greek and then in the later Latin. And so that's where we get that trans righteousness is everything being right, in right order, 
fair and even the justice side of it if you look up the definition of justice it often talks about things being made right fair and even and so in that understanding we get, we can recognize how justice and righteousness the pursuit of doing that see everything we live into that is the character of god that is only by the holy spirit working in us because of the grace of god through jesus who's shown us the way his righteousness in us that allows us to be able to start to live in a way that looks like justice and righteousness and the kingdom but when we seek that the promise is that god's plan is not that you would suffer so that others could have enough. That's what this text is answering. Don't worry about putting all of this into practice. This isn't some weird condemnation of people who struggle with anxiety or who are going through difficult situations and are concerned for their future or who don't have enough to eat and who are worried about where their next meal is coming from. This is answering the question that Paul answers when he says, should I give away everything that I have so I'm poor too? No, that's not what God requires of us. Because it's a question that's raised. But what is that going to look like for us? But the example we have in Jesus, the teaching we have in Jesus, is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What is right according to what God teaches us? And all of these things will be given to you as well. Suddenly that translation makes a little more sense. So all of these things that we pursue that are right according to the kingdom, they will all be afforded to you as well. This is the promise, the hope that we have in Jesus. This is what the kingdom looks like. Don't worry about tomorrow, for it will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. You know, I found great comfort in this. And I, I think that as I began to put, um, you know, Scripture and the teachings of Jesus as, in front of me as a lens to view the world, things can become overwhelmingly concerning. You know, things can become really hard. Uh, when you realize how much is wrong. But there's something about faith and trusting God that says, do what you can for today and don't worry about tomorrow for it has enough troubles of its own. But believing that ultimately God holds it all. Now, faith is assurance that he is who he says he is and that the things that he has said will be realized that the promises that he makes that it's all truth i think it's something 
that takes constant coming back to and remembering. Because we can also always get caught up in something else to do, something more to pursue, something bigger to reach, something more to get involved in or despair over. But we're invited into a place of walking with God in a way that shouldn't actually be harmful to us, shouldn't be costing us our own well-being and life and, uh, and joy. That's what the last little bit of this verse is. We only take on what today calls us to take on and leave the rest in the hands of the one who made us, who created everything, who promises that everything will be made right. Van can come and join us. I had the incredible privilege yesterday of leading the service at the end in sharing communion together. But I only played a little part <laughs> at the end. Um, what I got to witness before that. Um, at the request of the lady I mentioned before, she asked that uh, some of the elders could respond publicly to some of the things that have been shared throughout the day that were really lament, recognition and repentance by church leaders and other people who were involved in leading the conference. They'd been talking privately over lunch and in the breaks. And she asked if they would share those things that they were sharing publicly uh, so that particularly the young people, the younger generations that have certainly encountered the effects of what they've had to go through and at her description are still carrying a lot of that. She asked that you know, four of the people they'd been talking with would share some of those things and that some of their elders and one of their young people could respond. And so they did that. And I don't even know if it, it wasn't intended and I hadn't had much of a chance to uh, like explain how we do communion and most of them are from fairly like evangelical um, you know, missions kind of backgrounds and things, as in like the, um, the Christian missions that um, a lot of them grew up in. And so uh, communion, uh, as we share it here, is quite unfamiliar to most of the people I was talking with. And so they're unfamiliar with having a table present in what they're talking about at all. And... and um, and so, but we'd set up a table at the front and the elders stood one side around and those that were asked to share what they'd shared gathered around the other side. And they took turns speaking and responding. Um, an act of repentance by those who felt like their traditions sometimes their own 
you know, heritage, their own background, or where they were from, um, their own personal actions. Um, and they were able to offer an apology there. And um, those that participated, um, you know, asked God for forgiveness, repented. But those uh, you know, who represented the elders were offered the opportunity to respond if they wanted. And, um, and many of them did with words of forgiveness because they wanted to. Um, and, and it was in that, you know, just after that, um, that I'd been asked to then invite the rest of the congregation to come and receive. So we prayed a prayer of confession and invited everyone forward uh, to come and receive. And I don't know if I'll ever see a better picture of how this is supposed to play out. <laughs> yeah, that concept of if you need to be forgiven or be a forgiver, go and then run back. You're making right between people, between us and God, and then being invited to come and experience something that looks like the kingdom that we're called to seek. By the grace of God, he meets us in the midst of it. And it, it does look something, you know, like what it's supposed to. The church begins to look like what it's supposed to. Because after that, they shared, uh, the eight people either side shared communion with one another and then stood in a line and without it even being intended, they gathered in pairs, I guess the ones who had shared a word and then response came and shared. Um, and I shared a different call to the table, which, I mean, th mostly the same, but just some words different that were appropriate to respond to the situation. And I'd like to use that one this morning. So would you stand with us as we prepare to come around the table? We have our own confessions to make, our own repentance, our own restoration to seek with God. Well, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed by what we've done and what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole hearts, we not loved our neighbour, the stranger, our enemy, as you first loved us. Well, we're sorry. We repent. We ask that you forgive us. We ask that you would teach us your way and that you would empower us with your spirit to walk out that way. 
I just want to give you a moment. If there is something that your God has put on your heart, then lay it at his feet. Ask him to show you the way forward. Ask for forgiveness. So this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It's made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have a little. You who have tried to follow Jesus, you who feel you've failed in following Jesus, and you who have just decided to follow Jesus today. Come, let nothing keep you from love's feast. Let nothing say that love cannot overcome. Here we are all invited to leave judgment behind and receive mercy. Here, where we receive his body broken for us and his blood shed for us, we leave behind indifference and recognize the truth about who we really are, a body whole and fully alive. It is the Lord who invites us. It is our creator's will that those who desire Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would encounter him here. So come. Oh, welcome to... Join us in sharing our benediction before we head out. So church, we come as we are, but by sent out not the same. Sanctuary, he speaks over us a new name to bless and rebuild this city. So go, go cast good news for the poor, let the blind see, set free the oppressed and live jubilee. Let it be in his liberating grace that pardons and empowers sinners like us to participate in God's kingdom of mercy. And all God's people said, Amen.